Imagine going outside on a star evening, looking up in the sky and seeing the stars spelling out God exists. We might like that. We might like to be able to know some proof, some evidence that there is a God out there. But sometimes our questions are more than just, does God exist? The question is, does God care? Does it matter to God what's going on in our lives? And that's really the question we want to look at today to think about how do we know that God cares? How do we know that it matters what goes on in our life? How do we know that God understands the pain and the sorrow that we go through? To understand that it's much more that we want to know than simply God exists, but that what's happening in our lives makes a difference to God. And so we've been spending time the last few weeks in the Gospel of John in the first opening chapter, John chapter 1, as a way to take us through this season of Advent. Advent is the season that leads up the four Sundays preceding Christmas. It's a time of preparation. It's a time of thinking about how Jesus came the first time and how he's coming again. So there's traditions we have that go along with that, the lighting of the candles. There's scriptures that we read, and you notice we read a number of scriptures. Now, I'm not going to reference all of those today, but one thing we notice is that sometimes when we come and we worship, that it's not always the sermon that makes a difference. Sometimes it's a song we sing. Sometimes it's the reading of the scripture, even if the pastor doesn't reference that scripture, but that God speaks to us through that scripture. Sometimes it's just something somebody else at church says to us, or maybe just a hug or a handshake, something that makes a difference. And so we hear God's word and recognize that simply reading the scripture can make a difference in our life. But again, so what we're doing is we're going through this opening chapter of John, this magnificent prologue in a sense that he's talking about what's going on here. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to explore what he's saying. And what we want to focus on mostly is that later part of the passage. And in particular, verse 14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we're going to be focusing on that verse and some of what goes on around it and realize that there's a whole lot packed in there. Sometimes we read a verse and we realize that it's saying a whole lot. Sometimes we read through the Bible and there's some verses we're like, I don't know what and it, some seem kind of extra and other ones as we start to study them, as we start to explore them, we realize that the writer has crammed a whole lot into one little sentence. It's much like poetry. Sometimes as you learn to read poetry or you listen to the lyrics of a song, that sometimes one sentence can contain so much because it evokes other things. Or in this case, we might use the language of hyperlinks or echoes or allusions where John, as he writes these words, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory. All of a sudden, it's like, there's a lot going on in each of those. So we're going to take a little bit of time and kind of walk through just that one verse and think about what John is doing with it. And so he's saying the word, and he's already introduced us to the, who the word was in, ch in the verse one of chapter one. 
where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And so this Word he's talking about is God Himself, but also distinct from God. He was with God, and He was God. The Word is the Creator, the one who made all things, the entire universe, from the tiniest thing to the greatest things, the things we look at with electron microscopes to the things we observe with the Hubble telescope. All these things, God is the creator of all things. This one they called the Word is the creator of all these things. And so now John is coming back to this saying, then this Word became flesh. And so the language that theologians use is called the incarnation that the Word became flesh. And it's not simply saying that He just appeared to be human. It's not saying that God came down and He looked like He was human, but He really wasn't. But that He truly became human. And this is one of the mysteries of that theologians and students of the Bible and Christians have debated. It's like, well, is He God or is He man? Because well, who we're talking about here is Jesus. We don't know this yet, but we're talking about Jesus. So was he God or was he man? And we say, yes. He was fully God and fully man. And we might say, well, how could that happen? To which the answer is, I don't know. It's not something we can explain, but it's something simply we believe and we trust and we have faith in that he was fully God and fully man. That this man who walked around the shores of Galilee, who healed people, who, who had meals with his disciples, who, who wept in a garden, all these things, who died on a cross, was fully God and fully man. And so when it says he became man or the word became flesh, he didn't change from being God. And so one analogy might be when someone becomes a doctor, they don't stop being who they were before. When someone becomes a parent, when I became a parent, I didn't stop being Carl, but I was now both Carl and parent. And again, analogies, metaphors, often anything to do with God often breaks down when we try and understand and explain it. But it's saying he became flesh, so the word God himself became flesh. In other words, he entered into the mess of all creation. God didn't simply remain safe apart from all the things, but he entered into the mess of our lives. He entered into what it looks like to feel pain. Jan was talking about he entered in as a, as a baby. He experienced all those things that babies experience. There were probably times where he was cold, times when he was hungry, times when things didn't go the way he wanted them to go. And he entered into all of that experience of what it was like to be a human. And as he grew up, he felt hunger. He saw friends die and he, he felt that pain. He was betrayed. Ultimately, he was beaten and suffered physically and was crucified and died. And so as we think about that, it's saying God entered into all of our experience, which is one of the things that makes the faith that we hold, this thing called Christianity, unique from other religions around the world. In most other religions, the gods remain distant. Or if they appear on earth, this is some of the Greek mythology. It's just to experience a little bit of joy and then to go back to their safety. But it's saying here, the Word became flesh 
he entered into the mess that we all know. And for some of us, as we think about the Christmas season, the old song says it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's a song that comes on the radio all the time, but for some of us, it may not be the most wonderful time of the year. It can be a reminder of pain, of sorrow. It can be the reminder of, of a lost loved one. It can be the reminder of broken family relationships. It can be a reminder that you're going to have to sit around a Christmas dinner table with a bunch of people, and there are all these old grudges and hurts and sorrows, and they all come together, and, and you're just afraid, and you just want the meal to be over with and everyone to go on their own way. All these things can happen to some of us, and it's saying that this one who is the Word, the one who is the Creator, entered into all that and understands that. And it says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Depending on your translation, it may say something a little bit different. Some might say it, He tabernacled among us. Or Eugene Peterson's kind of paraphrase, translation called the message, he's like, you know, he pitched his tent. Because that's the language that's going on here behind what's saying is, is that Jesus came in and we could translate it, he pitched his tent. And we said, well, that's a strange word to use. Because again, what's John doing? John is echoing, he's alluding, he's hyperlinking to this other story because the tabernacle or the tent was something significant for the people of God. If we were to go back to the Old Testament, to the story of God's people, as they come out of slavery and they're entering this, God commands them to build a tabernacle, this tent, this portable sanctuary that travels with them. If you want to know how they built it, you can read basically the second half of the book of Exodus. Because the book of Exodus is an exciting story of rescue and all these things up through about chapter 20. And then they come to Mount Sinai and then there's the law and then it gets into a bunch of rules and about... 15 chapters of that is how to build a tent. In this particular tent called the tabernacle, because what God was giving his people was, he was saying, I am going to be with you, and the way I'm going to be with you is in this tabernacle. This is going to be the intersection of heaven and earth. And as you read about the description of the tabernacle, it's this microcosm of creation. There's all the things that evoke the Garden of Eden, but it's this way that God's presence traveled with them. So they had this tent and it represented his traveling with them. And so even in the book of Exodus, one verse from it, Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, he says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle or this tent and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so they make this tent and it's a place where heaven and earth meet. You imagine these overlapping sections where, in some sense, heaven is not a geography, but a, a dimension, and the tabernacle is a place where these two things meet. And in the tabernacle, there's this central promise that's kept. And one of the promises that runs throughout the Bible is that God is going to live with his people. And it may be something you want to do, and sometimes it's fun to trace themes and ideas. At least it's fun for me. Maybe it's not fun for you. Trace themes and ideas through the Bible, but maybe to notice through the Bible where it talks about this idea of God dwelling with his people. He makes the promise to Abraham where he says, and I will be with you. And even that language of, as you're reading through the Bible, pay attention to all the times where God says, and I will be with you. 
And it concludes in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, where it says, and God will be with them and they will be his people. And so there's this theme. And so the tabernacle, this tent, represented God living with his people. So when John says, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling or tabernacled among us, he's saying in that moment, in the incarnation, in Jesus being born, this is the fulfillment of a promise that God will live with his people. And so all these things are beginning to come true. We're only in the first part of the sentence here. So you can see what I'm saying where, where how much John packs in this little thing. Just saying the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us has already told us incredible things about the creator taking on and entering into our midst and God living among his people. And then it says, and we have seen his glory. I'm curious, what, what do you think of when you hear the word glory? Happiness? What a, light? Something bright? You know, I think of a old Bruce Springsteen song called Glory Days, where he's imagining that time when this person sitting there is remembering the time when he was the great baseball player, and it was the glory days. Because glory is in some sense also that sense of like, people pay attention. When you're glory, you're kind of lifted up and elevated. And so it says here, and we have seen his glory. But one of the things we realize is when we see the glory displayed in Jesus, what does that glory look like? Because as you read the rest of the story in the Gospel of John, does Jesus seem like a person of glory? I mean, people turn away from him. People don't notice what he's doing. And in some sense, Jesus takes the whole idea of glory and turns it upside down because ultimately we see the glory of Jesus displayed most when he dies on a cross. And so in this moment of suffering and shame, this moment of humiliation, which almost anyone standing there or hearing this story of a man who was crucified and hung on a cross to die, the first word in their mind would not be glory. It would be suffering. It would be humiliation. It would be despised. But what we learn is this is what it looks like to see God's glory. And the idea of glory is often just linked with seeing God or his godparents. And so again, this picture of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So when the Bible talks about the glory of the Lord, it's, it's an appearance, it's a manifestation, it's an evidence that God is there. And so again, Jesus, the glory is not what we think it is, but it connects with this later verse down to verse 18 of John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father has made him known. And so these things begin to connect together. And so we're going to go back again to our Old Testament and to see where John is again drawing on stories and pictures. And so I'm going to do a quick summary of a story that's happening. I mentioned earlier the book of Exodus. So the book of Exodus is the story of how God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then they, he brings them to Mount Sinai and he begins to give them the commandments and they're led by a man named Moses. And Moses, as he's receiving these commandments from God, he's on this mountain meeting with God and there's thunder and there's lightning and the people have a sense of the glory of God. 
this display of God. But the people at the bottom of the mountain begin to wonder, what happened to Moses? Because Moses begins to take too long. And the people begin to grow impatient, like, where did Moses go? What happened to him? And so they do something, even though they've just heard from God, Moses has come down once, gone back up in the mountain. Moses has given them the commands of God, and the first command is, you shall have no other gods before me. And he tells them not to make idols. So the people are at the bottom of the mountain. They're waiting for Moses. And so what do they decide to do? Make an idol. I know. And you shake your head, and then you realize that oftentimes the Bible is a mirror for us, that sometimes we hear it, and then the first thing we do is we run out and do it. And so the people create this idol, this golden calf, and God tells Moses about it. And Moses is trying to figure out what to do, and he's having this conversation with God. And, and ultimately then, after this is resolved a little bit, the people got, Moses knows that they have to go from the mountain to this land that God has promised. And Moses is wondering, are you still coming with us, God? Because what has just happened? God has made a covenant, a, he's forged a relationship with the people, and the people have said, well, do whatever you want, God, and the first thing they do is something God doesn't want. They make an idol. And so now Moses is starting to wonder, and he's questioning God and saying, God, are you still coming with us? Which seems to be a fair question. To wonder, wait a minute, the people after having just promised that they would do everything God wanted have disobeyed him. They've gone off with another person on their wedding night. And so Moses said, God, are you, are you still coming with us? And so he wants it. He says, God, can you, can you show me? Can you give me some sign, a guarantee of your presence? And so what does he ask for? He says, God, can you show me your glory? And God said, yes. And then he says, but you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. So here's where we start linking back to the story of John, because at the end of John, verse 118, he says, no one has ever seen God. Now you begin to think, well, but there are all these stories in the Old Testament of people seeing God. Well, they see manifestations, they maybe see an angel, they see something, but God is saying, you can't see me in my fullness and live. But God says, it's okay, I'm going to, I'm going to show you myself, I'm going to pass in front of you, and so he says, and I'm going to proclaim my name. So he says, Moses, go up on the mountain, and I'm going to show you my face, but I want you to hide the back and you'll see my back. You'll see my glory. And I will proclaim my name to you. And then in Exodus 34, verse 6, there's this key verse. So actually it's 34, 6, and 7. You can read the rest of it, which is, as one person put it, kind of the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. And why does people say that? Because this passage, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, is the most requoted passage in the Old Testament. In other words, as the other writers of the Old Testament are drawing on what God is like, that's the verse they go back to. And so, and he, meaning the God, and, he, and God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness.
great picture of who God is, and he's, he's saying, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God abounding in love and faithfulness. Thank you. This picture of who God is and what he's like. And here's where it starts to link again back to John. Because those words in Exodus 34, 6, abounding in love and faithfulness, if we were to write them in the same language as the New Testament, it would be full of grace and truth. And so when it says, and the word became flesh and we've seen the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, John is saying, this is the same God that was the God that met with Moses back on Mount Sinai, the one who was full of grace and truth, the one who was full of faithfulness. In other words, that same God who said, yes, even though you have chosen to follow an idol, even though you've chose to create this idol here on the day where we made a promise together, I will still go with you. I will still be faithful to you. That same God is the God who came down and was born as a child. That the character of God is displayed in Jesus, that Jesus embodies the tabernacle and God's presence, that Jesus embodies God's character and who he is. And so as we think about this big thing called the incarnation, that's part of what we see is that Jesus himself and what John is telling us is he's embodied the presence and the character of God. Jesus has embodied who God is and what God is like. And so as we think about this and think, okay, now what does this mean for us and how might we do it? I think we might think of it in terms of three questions that we might be asking or someone might ask. And the first question that sometimes we might ask or other people might be asking is, what is God like? What is God like? Because you can have a conversation with somebody and say, well, I believe in God. And you say, well, what's God, what's God like? And what John wants us to understand is that Jesus lifts the veil, that this is God who is showing himself, that they, this is the one who has been with the Father. And so even at the end, verse 18, we'll go back to that. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. Again, there's that kind of like, he's God, but he's distinct from God. So he's God, but he's in relationship with God. But he says, he has made him known. And even the language there that goes on is implying that how does Jesus make God known? John's saying, read the rest of the story. That's how we know how Jesus makes God known. In other words, start reading through and see how Jesus behaves. See his words, his actions. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus and see his behaviors. And so one of the things we might do is we might simply read these stories, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and say, what is God like? Or if somebody asks you, say, I don't, what, what is this God you're talking about? What is he like? And say, this is how God has revealed himself. He revealed himself in Jesus. And what was Jesus like? Jesus was one who welcomed sinners and ate dinner with them. Jesus is one who brought life and healing. 
Jesus is one who ultimately gave his life that we might have life. And so we might be tempted sometimes to read our Bibles and begin to split it up into two parts, like there's this Old Testament God and there's this God of wrath and he's horrible and terrible. And then we come along and we got Jesus. And when we read here, John is saying, no, it's the same God. They're no different if you want to understand. And so what this can also do is begin, as we read our Old Testament stories, is read them through as followers of Jesus. We read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. We see how God displayed himself. So when God tells us that he is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness, that he is the gracious God who is full of grace and truth that he's loyal, he's faithful, and this is what he looks like, that he's a God of mercy and grace. And so when we're wondering, I don't know, maybe we're thinking, I, I did this thing and I'm not sure that God can forgive me. Go and look and see how Jesus acts in the words of Jesus. When we're beginning to wonder, well, how do I deal with that annoying person over here? Or how do I deal with this broken relationship that's going on? How do I deal with the urges that are going on inside of me? Go and see how Jesus does it. Go and see the words of Jesus, and then you will know what God wants, and you will know what God is like. So we can answer the question, what is God like by looking at Jesus? The second question we might ask is, does God understand our troubles? Because again, we might have this picture of God being far off and distant. And what it says when John says the word became flesh and made his dwelling, he pitched his tent among us. When you pitch a tent, you intend to stay there for a little while. I mean, if you're camping, you don't stop and say, well, I'm taking a lunch break, let's put up the tent. You just don't pass by this like nice site and like, wow, this is a kind of nice place. And they're like, let's take a view. Oh, let's get out the tent. You pitch a tent, why? Because you're staying for a little while and you're living among it. So when it says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He lived among us. He felt our pain and what it's feel like. To become flesh is to say He doesn't stay distant. This is what I've already been getting at in some senses. God entered into all the pain of human experience. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hurt. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He's experienced that range of motions. He's experienced our struggles. Writer to Hebrews says he was tempted in every way. He, he knows what it's like to be tempted. You think, oh, he's God. He doesn't. The Bible says he knows what it's like to be tempted. Now, he didn't fall into the temptation. But he knows what it's like to be looking and to saying, I could do this by my own power. He knows what it's like to say, take the easy way instead of the way of God. And so... If you're experiencing a season of sorrow, a season of lament, even a season of questioning and wondering what's going on, you might even remember that Jesus, when he was dying on a cross, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Jesus, in some, again, mysterious way, felt a sense of absence, felt that there was something going on, and so as he cries out, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's pleading with God and saying, I, God, I'd rather do it a different way, but not your will, but not my will, but your will. And maybe we've been in those places where we think there's got to be an easier way. Sometimes there is an easier way, 
but it may not be the way that God desires. And so if we're asking, does God understand this? If we're going to prayer to God and say, God, I, I don't know if you can understand. The answer is yes, he can. He can understand what we're going through. And then the third question maybe is closely related to that. Is does God care? Does God care about what's going on? Think of in our own world that we live in and we think of the people we send off to government to serve as our Congress and our Senate, as our governors, as our president. And sometimes we wonder, do they care? Do they care about what's going on in our lives? They care about our votes. They care often about remaining in their position of power. They might care if we send enough letters to them. But what we see here is a God who cares because that's who He is, is a God who cares. That is, He is a God who becomes flesh, that He enters into our pain and suffering, and then He ultimately dies for us and is raised for us. And so again, that experience of saying, when you're going through those hard times, God understands them, and not only that, God cares about them. God doesn't look and say, well, yeah, I understand what you're going through. Suck it up now. You know, too bad, that's life. No, he says, no. He enters into the pain, and then he says, I am going to make all things new. I'm going to create a new thing. And so that's part of what John has already alluded to, because he's told us that the word who became flesh is the creator. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all. And so when we're feeling over depressed by the darkness, and verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it's a reminder that God cares, and he shows it in Jesus. He says, so whatever that darkness is that you're experiencing, whatever those things are, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what is God like? Does God understand? Does God care? And to all of those, we just simply answer, the answer is Jesus. We know what God is like because we see Jesus. We know that God understands us because of Jesus. We know that God cares because of Jesus. And it can seem like the simple answer that you get when you're in a Sunday school class with little kids and not knowing what else to say, they'll just say Jesus. Because they know they've learned all along to say, well, I, if I don't know the answer, it's probably Jesus because that's what the Sunday school teacher always wants me to talk about. And we may chuckle at that. We may laugh at that. But in a sense, they're absolutely right because that is the answer. That's the thing we should, when we're saying, I don't understand, I don't know, I don't know. Our response should be that of a child to say, we turn to Jesus. When we're trying to understand what God is like, we turn and we look at Jesus. When we're trying to understand if God cares about us, we turn to Jesus. When we're looking trying to understand, does God understand what we're going through? We turn and we look at Jesus. So may we, this season of Advent, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, whatever questions you have, and it may be something other than those questions, may you turn to Jesus, the Word who became flesh and made His dwelling among us, the One who has made God known. Amen.